HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's episode of The Farm Report has been brought to you by The Barter House. When you open the bottle and you drink the wine, it speaks for itself. Is it, you know, a wine that's made for food? Yes. Those types of wines are tend to be more rustic or have a little bit more body. Are there wines that are just pure out hedonistic pleasure? Sure, there's wines like that that maybe from California that are more cocktail wines or wines that are just big jammy fruit bombs. And those, I think, appeal to a certain group, group of people as well. I think the wines that Barterhouse specializes in is more of these food-friendly you know, rustic style, um, biodynamic, organic wines that tend to be a bit more earthy, come from someplace. So you can almost taste the terroir. You can almost feel this guy, this Sansara was grown in this slaty, rocky soil. And so to me, that's the exciting part that the wine feels like it comes from someplace. Okay, it's Thursday at 1 o'clock, and you are tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. We're listening to The Farm Report, and we are live in studio with a very special guest, Carrie Grassi. Uh, Carrie is the Fresh Kills Park Land Use and Outreach Manager. She works for the New York City Department of Parks. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Thanks so much. Well, we are excited to have you here. Um, One of the things we kind of touch on on the show a lot... um, is land use and you know I've said before that that no one's really tearing down houses to build farms um, and the Fresh Kills project is really interesting because you guys kind of are doing that on some level why don't you let our listeners know kind of what is Fresh Kills sure. and kind of the general lay of the land so to speak sure so uh, Fresh Kills is New York City's uh, former landfill um, it was open for 50 years starting in 1948 Um, and basically took all of New York City's household waste. Um, And so the site was closed in 2001. It's a 2,200-acre site, which is, to put that in perspective, it's about uh, two and a half times the size of Central Park. Okay. So it's a huge site. Um, It was closed in 2001 and is undergoing its capping procedures, um, sort of making the site safe for people and the environment, and the city is working on transforming it into a public park. Um, and so the idea is to really reclaim the land for um, the public's use. Okay, so when I think landfill, I'm imagining like wide open expanse of trash. And you mentioned right. camping. Capping. So can you talk a little bit more about what that what that is and, and maybe just give us a general picture of what it looks like if we were to go out to the site? Sure. So 
first, the site is beautiful. It's um, It looks like four big green rolling hills with a system of creeks and wetlands through the center of the site. Um, it's really quite magnificent and um, exactly not what people expect when they think of a landfill. Okay. Um, so in order to get it to that state, uh, basically what happens is the each of the landfill mounds is capped. Um, so first there's a system of infrastructure that gets put in place um, to manage the byproducts of decomposing waste, which are landfill gas, the majority of which is methane, okay. um, and then a leachate, which is the liquid byproduct, which is basically produced when water percolates through decomposing waste. So kind of like my garbage can when it gets a little soggy it, at the bottom. Exactly, that okay. brown... But like on a much, that, much bigger exactly, scale. <laughs> that brown gooey stuff, that is leachate. Okay. Um, and so the site produces very large quantities of it. Okay. Um, and so these systems have been put in place that basically capture both of these byproducts. So all of the leachate is collected and processed sort of at a uh, similar to a wastewater treatment plant where the water is scrubbed clean, um, the clean water is discharged into the Arthur Kill River, and those uh, uh, solid byproducts are sent to a, a landfill elsewhere. Um, and then that landfill gas is collected through a system of pipes and wells that's inserted into the waste throughout the site. It's basically all connected on a vacuum system, okay. um, sucking the gas out of the mounds, out of the four mounds, and then sending that gas to a separate processing plant um, that purifies the gas. And the gas gets uh, basically piped directly to National Grid, New York City's um, natural gas provider. And it produces about enough natural gas to heat, I would say, 20,000 homes. Wow. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's a huge quantity of gas that we collect. We prevent from going into the atmosphere. Methane is a greenhouse gas. Um, and then the city actually does make about $12 million a year in revenue on the sale of that gas gas um so that the landfill is sort of being productive for us and is that something like will the gas and the leachate kind of continue in perpetuity or is there a timeline on that um the timeline is sort of hard to uh establish because um waste is sort of differential and um but but the quantities will diminish over time um so uh the estimate is about 30 years but that it may be less it may be more um um, it's hard. It's hard to say uh, because of the differential quality of of waste. Um, not only sort of particular waste products, but the differential quality between waste forty years ago and waste now. Okay, so we're not kind of throwing away the same things in the right, same way. Right. That There's changes. a lot sort of less organic matter, I would say, more plastics that are being thrown away now that were in 1950. Okay. Um, and so just to finish the capping procedure, so once all of that infrastructure is in place, um, what happens is the the mounds are basically, basically sculpted with uh, layers of, of dirt, of soil, um, to produce uh, shapes that um, will prevent erosion so so there's not slope slippage um, and then uh, there's a, a sort of a geotextile fabric that goes on top of that sounds very layer. fancy it's very technical <laughs> um, that um, is called a gas migration layer so any of that gas that rises to the surface it helps it sort of move laterally to find one of the wellheads and get vacuumed into that system on top of that goes the actual geo geo geomembrane it's an impermeable layer it's the actual physical layer between the the uh, waste below and the environment above okay um so that what that layer does is prevents um 
any water from percolating through, so you're stopping the the water. You're trying to cut off leachate production. Okay. Um, and you're preventing any of the gas from escaping from the from the from the site. Uh, on top of that goes a another geotextile, another fancy fabric. Um, that uh, helps with water drainage off the mounds. And so all of the water is managed um, at the site. All of the stormwater um, has stormwater retention basins, so we're not sort of flooding the communities around the landfill. Um, And then on top of that goes two feet of very clean soil um, and then six inches of planting soil, and then the site is required to be planted as part of um, landfill capping to prevent erosion and and to promote sto- slope sl- stabilization. So that is why the site looks so beautiful already when the Parks Department hasn't come in yet and, and done any construction. Um, the site is already green and lush and beautiful. And just to get a sense of perspective, the how much of the site are mounds and how much is like other space? Um, so we, we refer to the site as sort of being there are areas that are on mound and areas that are off mound. Okay. Um, so I would say the, the mound areas are about 45% of that 2,200 acres. Um, the rest are off mound flat areas. Some are uh, vegetated already um, and then some are paved already because of um, landfill operations. So where sanitation has their trailers and their offices and their um, facilities. Um, And then the site, again, is also comprised of these creeks and wetlands that run through the center of the site. The entire site before it was Mm landfilled was basically all low-lying marshland, um, wetlands, very very soggy land that the city was trying to at the time sort of, it was a Robert Moses project, um, reclaim the site for productive use was was the line to sort of the original idea actually was to fill the site for three years, create solid ground, um, and then build housing on one side of the highway and an industrial zone on the other side. Okay. Um, so, but it became such a great site for landfilling, so it just continued and continued. The timeline kept getting extended and extended um, until 50 years later. It was the largest landfill in the world. Wow. So I, I'm, I'm sure that the, the folks in Staten Island are really excited about this park's process. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Not, no one's mourning the loss of the land, the landfill. So is this kind of a normal thing? I mean, you know, obviously there's trash across the country and the world, and, and we're having to deal with it. I mean, is there much of a precedent, precedence for turning a landfill into a park? Or? You know, there there is, um, not on this scale. Um, this is uh, definitely the largest in the country, and we think it's the largest uh, landfill-to-park transformation in the world, um, though there are landfill-to-park transformations all over the world um, that have happened. Um, and so... You know, but being New York City, we have to do it biggest Bigger, and best. The biggest and the best. <laughs> well, speaking of that, I mean, you guys brought in a pretty fancy pants design firm. You know, just uh, and people, just just people who are listening in, you can go to the park's website. Do you have the website? Is sure, it's um, nyc.gov/slash/parks/slash/freshkillspark. Uh, and there's access to the full um, the full draft master plan, right. which has pictures of all the kind of permeable geotechnic fabric layers that that Carrie was referring to in addition to kind of a a really broad outline but it's kind of fascinating how how did I mean how did this project really get started how did you end up with such a kind of a boutique uh design firm the same design firm that did the highline right yeah actually the the um the firm James Corner Field Operations um 
uh, was awarded the Fresh Kills project first. Um, and that's actually, I think, part of the reason they got the Highline project. Um, uh, but because Fresh Kills is such a long-term project, the Highline, we're actually seeing the results of uh, in advance of Fresh Kills. But um, back in, um, I think it was 1999, the Municipal Art Society, which is a uh, sort of a good government, um, good planning um, nonprofit here in the city basically approached the city um, and said, you know, you can't waste this opportunity. This site's about to close. The city, you know, will never have this much land come available. Um, and so we've got to do something about it. And the, the city really sort of took took charge of that of that idea and so held an international design competition in 2001 field operations won that competition um they were a very small firm at the time and they've they've grown exponentially um and so they then led sort of a multi-year planning process citywide um for the next three years producing the draft master plan in 2006 um outlining sort of the the kind of the conceptual plan for the park as a whole um and now um what we're doing is kind of drilling in on specific sites we're taking about 20 to 50 acres at a time um, and really focusing in on the sites and, um, you know, putting together uh, specific projects that will then open to the public. So then the park isn't, it's not going to be the full, you know, 22 or 2,500 acres open at once. You're opening kind of chunks so people will get to go and see. That's right. That's right. Because it's so big, because it's such a long-term project, you know, we're estimating for the full build-out about 30 years. Um, I mean, you think it it took 50 years to make the landfill. It's going to take some time to make... uh, to make this park. So we do want the the public to be able to experience it, you know, before that 30 years is up. So taking small chunks at a time, um, uh, so we can open it to the public and have people really get in there and, and, and see it and and, uh, enjoy it. So can, can you go on the site at all right now? Yes. Um, we lead public tours of the site. Um, we do them. They've already started for this year. We do them April through November, um, basically every Wednesday and Saturday. Um, and so you can sign up on our website um, or you can organize a group and contact us and, you know, bring a group of your friends um, out to the site. And it's, it's really spectacular. And actually, this time of the year, when things are greening up, it's really, it's really quite um, amazing. And how much does that cost? It's free. What? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely free. We really, we really want people to to get out and see the site. So, um, it's a it's a pleasure for us to take people out and see their see their reaction and see their excitement about about the site that we love. So, you talked a little bit, you know, about the design firm kind of looking at a an overarching plan for the park, and I'm sure that you know, obviously, if it's an international design competition, there was probably a variety of of plans proposed. So, can you talk a little bit about what? You know why? Why you ended up going with the firm that you went with, and what is kind of the overarching like theme of theirs that really set them apart from some of yeah. the other people? Um, I think that that James Corner Field Operations really understood the the process side of the park, and that um, you know it it is a, a park in evolution, and it and it and it kind of will always be um, the idea is to, to create kind of as, as sustainable a, a park as possible because of its size um, you know we want we want the, the plants and the, the, the animals to kind of come back and so um, 
it, it's not going to be kind of an ornamental, we'll plant everything and this is its stasis. It's really about kind of the evolutionary nature of kind of mother nature, nature taking over. So you put these little um, uh, sort of starters in and, and, and let mother nature kind of take over. So bringing back some native plants to the site, you know, planting kind of a few trees, letting the birds and the bees kind of take over. Um, and really help us populate the the rest of the 2,200 acres. I think that has been one of the interesting things in kind of reading a little bit about the park is this, uh, you know, historically marshlands were really looked at as this kind of, you know, wasted space and this thing to, you know, fill in and build over. And I think as time has gone by, we've really learned about the importance of those ecosystems and how they they contribute to, you know, the land around us. Um, just wondering, in the plan, they talk a lot, they use this word lifescape. What, what is a lifescape? Yeah, so that was their concept. We don't refer to that uh, so much anymore, but that was their concept for the master plan, um, which, you know, it's sort of uh, this idea of life cycle, of landscape. So again, that sort of that process-oriented um, development of the park rather than just sort of we're going to build some facilities and, yeah, it's a park. It's sort of really about this ongoing process. Kind of that engaging the park, with exactly. the land. Exactly. Um, you know, and the land working, sort of working to heal itself. You know, it's working underground and sort of the above ground will, will be working as well. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll hear a little bit more about Fresh Kills. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. Okay, we're back. You're tuned into the Farm Report. We are live in studio with Carrie Grassy of Fresh Kills Park, talking about conversion of landfills to parks. Uh, New York, New York City, and the world's largest landfill for quite some time, being transformed into uh, a park two and a half times the size of Central Park. So that's exciting. Before the show, we were talking. I mean, before the break, we were talking. 
a little bit about this idea of lifescape and regenerating the park. And I'm sure you get this question a lot, but, you know, what are the safety concerns? I mean, is it okay to, like, be on the mounds? Like, sure. How yeah. are you testing and yeah. regulating and all that stuff? Yeah, we get that question a lot. Um, um, and it's, yeah, a very important one. Um, um, so the site um, is basically regulated by the state. It's regulated by the State Department of Environmental Conservation um, um, under their Solid Waste Division. Um, and so all of this process that I spoke of earlier about capping the landfill and putting the infrastructure in place um, is all about keeping the site safe. So creating this physical barrier between you and, and um, the waste and um, and then basically collecting all of the, the byproducts. Um, in addition, the, um, the Department of Sanitation, which are our partners on this project, um, they are required uh, by law to monitor and maintain all of this infrastructure. Um, so they do regular reports uh, to the state um, on you know um, air quality, on water quality, sediment, um, looking at various levels of contaminants to make sure that they are below the determined thresholds for um, health and human safety. So, um, yeah, we're looking at the site very closely, constantly for all of these these concerns. Um, but, you know, people, uh, again, and you sort of spoke about at the beginning this idea that people have of landfills of being sort of these trashy places, which they are and they were, um, as they're capped and as they're closed, you can really sort of do a lot and bring bring humans and bring animals back to the site um, in a very productive way. So I think it's like one of the most exciting aspects of the project for me to really think about is this, you know, uh, Fresh Kills really as a model for mm-hmm. for cities and municipalities across the country to not not just think of these areas as like kind of wasted land, especially, you know, an area as dense as New York City, exactly. like kind of unfathomable to have access all of a sudden to, you know, over 2000 acres exactly. of open space. And, you know, I mean, every place has a landfill. Um, unfortunately, you know, we haven't solved the garbage problem. We still make a lot of garbage and it's got to go somewhere. Um, and so, you know, cities, towns, municipalities all over the world have landfills, and so we actually do get visitors from all over the country and all, of the, oh, all over the world coming to New York to see what we're doing here, to see what lessons they can learn from us, and, and you know, and we're happy to learn lessons from them as well. Um, so, you know, I really think what we're doing here in New York can and will become a model for, um, for other landfills all over the world. Like we're always a model. <laughs> I mean, not to toot our own horns. Not to toot our own horns, but... <laughs> um, well, let's let's talk a little bit maybe about the limits of the site. I'm assuming, you know, these mounds... I'm not going to, like, put a house on top of the mound or right. a giant building. I right. mean, are there some kind of... What's the structural capacity? Right. So, so the mounds are, you know, mounds of, of garbage. So it's not... Um, it's not stable, stable ground that you can sort of build a, a large foundation on top of. And again, there's all of this sort of very sensitive landfill infrastructure that's um, that's there that we want to keep safe and functioning. Um, so the the plan really is is um, is a lot of it is determined by what you can and can't do physically on the site. So we don't really have a lot of structures on the mounds, planned for the mounds. Um, you know, it's very difficult to bring utilities 
through the mounds. Um, so, you know, that's a great thing, though, because the mounds then get left sort of open and we have, we'll have these, you know, huge meadows and walking paths and, um, you know, potentially horse riding paths. And the views from the top of the mounds are are pretty spectacular. You can see lower Manhattan. Um, you can see all four bridges that connect to Staten Island. Um, and there are sort of these vistas that you really don't get anywhere else in the city because it's such a dense city that there's this sort of sense of open sky. It's a really special place. Um, so, you know, but because there are these off-mound areas, these flat areas, right. um, you know, you do. it's a park. We will need restrooms. We will need um, various facilities, nature centers, um, visitor centers, etc. Um, so we do have space for those in the off-mound, the flat areas that we can build on. Can you talk about, you know, in the first kind of phase of the project, what are some what are some of the first things that are going to be opening that people are going to get to see? Sure. So we have actually two projects in construction right now. Um, one is the Owl Hollow soccer field. It's on the edge of the site, um, the sou- southern section of the site. It's a series of four soccer fields. Um and a uh, lead certified com- comfort station. Comfort station, for those of you not in New York, uh, is, is park speak for bathroom. Got it. Um, so um, that, that facility will have a green roof and a little mini wind turbine, um, geothermal heating and cooling. So everything wow. that we do, we really want to be kind of responsible to the environment, um, you know, Part because it's sort of what's going on now, but but really because of the history of the site and and um, kind of wanting to use it as a as a lesson for how we should be treating the environment and thinking about these things like um, waste and energy and um, so that's the first project we're in construction now. Um, hopefully, it should be open um, next year. Um, we're also in construction on a small playground. Um, in the northern part of the park um, that will serve as a pedestrian entrance into um, what we call North Park Phase 1. Um, so North Park Phase 1 um, has all been designed. It's going through its permitting right now. And it's basically a... Fun. Yeah, yeah good times, good times. Um, it's basically a long pathway into the site out to the wetland areas. Um, and along the way... You'll have a composting comfort station, so a composting toilet, um, bike paths, picnic areas, um, and then we'll have a tree nursery and a seed farm um, that folks will be able to sort of watch, again, the site sort of being active and being productive. Um, And then out at the end of the path, we'll have these two kind of bird observation towers and an overlook deck. So again, you get these, these great views of the, there's a wildlife refuge just to the north, Great, great bird watching at the really? site. Amazing, yeah. Awesome. Can you talk? Like, I want to back up. Talk a little bit more about a, a seed farm. Sure. What kind so, of what are you? What's you growing? Yeah. Um, so we're working with um, a parks facility called the Greenbelt Native Plant Center. It's actually just adjacent to the site. It's on an old family farm um, that was donated to the parks department, um, and they do native plant propagation for the city. So. Um, uh, what they do, this, this specifically this seed farm, um, they have a number of them and will be expanding their operations. Um, it's a seven-acre uh, seed farm um, that we're calling, it's called a, a founder seed farm, basically. So what they're doing is taking um, 
native seeds, but but local native. So a lot of times when you buy native seed from a from a bulk producer, mm-hmm. you're buying the right species of plant, but it could be grown in the Midwest. So genetically, it's actually um, not necessarily appropriate for New York City specifically. Okay. Um, and so what they're doing is they're collecting native seed from around the city. Um, uh, combining them so that there's a genetically diverse mix um, mm-hmm. and then growing them into a native seed mix on these founder seed plots, um, okay. which one of which will have at Fresh Kills. Once that seed is actually grown, then that seed gets sent to a bulk producer to be to be bulked out and then brought back to Fresh Kills so that we can repopulate the rest of the site with, with um, plants that are genetically... Um, uh, specific to our area so that can sustain our weather, our t- soil types. You know, we are an urban area, so um, plants that can live in kind of these harsh conditions. Okay, and then I, I'm assuming, you know, plants that are, are grow kind of more naturally here have this added benefit of, like, reducing the maintenance costs, right? Because they don't need... Exactly. Like, exactly. They're not like a golf course that needs kind of constant inputs of, like, fertilizer exactly. and mowing. Exactly. And- Wow, that's cool. And what about the nursery? Um, So in addition, we'll be doing a tree nursery um, on the site, about 800 trees. um, And it's it's called a a pot and pot tree nursery. Um, It's it's being used more and more in tree nurseries. And it's basically um, we create a field of of sockets um, in the ground. And so the, the plants are grown in containers, but in the ground. And this way we don't have to be sort of continually digging up the dirt, disturbing um, the roots, etc. You sort of plant them in the ground in these sockets, in these containers, and so you can quickly remove them and then quickly replant. Um, so it's a great solution for sort of our regulatory environment, um, where our regulators are very concerned about soil disturbance, etc., sure, yeah. because of protecting that that cap and the infrastructure. And so then those trees will go in other spots around the site. Exactly, exactly. Very closed circle. I yes. like it. I like it a lot. So how can people get involved if they if they are curious and, and you know, you said things are going to be kind of phased out and there's this planning process. And if people are interested in kind of spending some time at the park or, or having some influence on that development process, what are what are ways for them to, to yeah, show their support? Get in touch. I mean, um, I think, you know, coming out to this site and really experiencing it, I can talk till I'm blue in the face about it, but it's really just by going there that you really see the potential. Um, and I guarantee you, you will get excited about the site. Um, so please come out on a tour. Again, we do tours every Wednesday and Saturday. You can sign up directly on our website. Um, we also, you know, you know, it's difficult to get out to Staten Island for some folks. So um, we try and do as many offsite events as possible, just to sort of engage people in the ideas um, that Fresh Kills sort of uh, deals with. Um, we have one event um, coming up. It's part of our Fresh Kills Park Talks lecture series. Um, it's on May 9th, and it'll be held at a, a, a location at NYU. Um, and it's actually we're working with NYU on um, an oral history project. Um, so, you know, people on Staten Island have lived with this landfill for many years, and people have many history, many uh, 
memories of the site before it was landfill, during it was landfill, ideas about what it will be after. Um, and then, you know, also all of the sanitation workers that have participated in sort of cleaning up after us and keeping our keeping our city healthy and alive, really. Um, so this oral history project is focused on that, um, and the students working on that project will be doing a basically a presentation. So on May 9th um, at NYU, and again, the information's all on our website. It's um, www.nyc.gov slash parks slash Fresh Kills Park. Awesome. I highly recommend checking out the website, checking out the plan. Such an exciting project. Carrie, thank you so much for coming into thank the studio today. Thank you so today. much for having me. This is fantastic. It's great to have you. Um, and then tune in next week, 1 o'clock, we have Fred Madoff back on the show talking about food from the global perspective. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. In 2010, EscapeMaker.com won an Emmy Award for their agritourism webisode, so this year they thought, why not bring agritourism and green getaway ideas right to you? Come to the Green Getaways Local Food and Travel Expo on April 30th at One Hanson Place, home of the Brooklyn Flea and former Williamsburg Savings Bank. Presented by Amtrak, Zipcar, and I Love New York, the carbon-free event will be a day filled with food, prizes, workshops, and kids' activities. Over 50 getaway destinations, from counties to local farms and bed and breakfast within a day's drive or train ride of New York City, will be exhibiting on the main floor and in the huge bank vault downstairs. See what's hot in sustainable travel and receive special show-only discounts. Grow NYC will be doing workshops on the green market, and Appalachian Mountain Club will offer workshops on adventure bicycling and hiking via mass transit. EscapeMaker.com will be giving away over 50 getaway prizes, ranging from zipline adventure passes to an overnight stay at Mohonk Mountain House. Travel greener, eat local. Come to the expo on April 30th. Get your tickets now at www.escapemaker.com. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today.